Hey, I'm Richard Buse, once again welcoming you to this next in our series of studies on the book of Revelation. I'm joined here by Paul Blackham and by our special guest, Stephen Nichols. And as we come to this second study now, we're turning to the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I think what we should do is to call this Jesus the ruler of God's creation. And why did I start by reading a little bit from chapter 2, first few verses. Here we are. John is writing, John the Apostle, to the angels of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. That's the letter, of course, to the church in Ephesus. And I suppose we need to first of all clear in our minds why these letters are written to the, what's called the angel at each local church. And where does this book, really about the history of the world, the last book of the Bible, um, why does it start with these short seven letters to seven little churches <laughs> In Asia Minor, on the west side of modern Turkey. I know, it's funny, isn't it? The whole universe! Let's write to these seven little churches there. And, and, yes. Why exactly. is that? And, and then, why is it... First of all, it's <clears throat> like each of them is addressed to, like, the angel at the church in Ephesus, the angel at Smyrna. I think the angel thing is, well, it could refer to just the minister in charge of that little church and, and then that he's sort of like would be a messenger. Yeah. That's true, it could refer to that. But as well, if you notice, even though in chapter one, the Lord Jesus sent his angel to John and then all the way through the book, there's so much about these angels and the hundreds of millions of angels in the highest heaven. And in a way, to those little churches, there might be like a hundred believers in this pagan city in the middle of the Roman Empire with so much opposition. And even by using that word, like the angel, it immediately makes them think there's an unseen creation behind the scenes. And like, almost like they might feel like they're a little minority, but actually the majority, all the hosts of heaven are just behind the scenes, serving them, empowering them, encouraging them. We can think about when Elisha and his servant, and they thought they were outnumbered, his eyes are opened and he sees the heavenly host. It's a little bit of that flavour to these letters. But as well, I think it's as well, there's a sense of, what, well, what do these little churches matter? Well, there's seven of them, and there's something of the rhythm of creation, oh, of and that, that comes up as well. And I think as well that, I think, they, there's something about the challenges that face all the churches, I think. Well, you were sharing something about how there's something about each church that's a, a challenge that all churches kind of face. What were you saying oh, about yes, that? Oh, well, yes. I mean, we, we had a little chat earlier, didn't we? It seems to me that once you look at these churches, there's a special challenge and message for each of them. But also, you can look at the universal church like that, or your own local church, wherever you are. For example, you see you have here Ephesus, uh, which is, I think you could summarize it as the backsliding church. Mm. I have this against you. Or you could have, have Smyrna, which is in modern day Izmir in Turkey. The suffering church, that seems to come out there. Or Pergamon we come on to, which was the compromising church. Or Thyatira, which was the polluted church with false teachers. Or Sardis, which I think you could regard as the dying church. 
or Philadelphia, which is a very pure church. I think we might call that the serving church. Or Laodicea comes at the end, the seventh church, the lukewarm church. Uh-huh. So in that way, we can apply these, the message of these churches to our own churches and say, yeah. well, where does our church match up? Where are we? Something along those lines. What do you think? I love that. And it helps us to understand, like, because sometimes people take the book of Revelation and they're like, oh, this is a message that oh, only for the churches at the very end of the world, like you were saying earlier. You're like, no, this was a message to those churches then. It had to be relevant to them. Otherwise, why would they bother reading it? Exactly. It's relevant to them, relevant to all the churches. I love that, Richard. It's very important. Blessed is the one who, whoever it is who reads this prophecy. Mm. So that's that. Yes, and then, Steve, I mean, looking at these, well, each letter begins with a special description of Jesus. We've noticed that. And ends then with a special promise, like in verse 7 of uh, chapter 2, a promise for those who endure. What do we learn from this pattern, do you think? Yes, it is a pattern that we can see pretty much in all the letters. It starts with the description of Jesus drawn from that wonderful figure of him in chapter one, the wonderful description of him. So each letter starts with a a part of that description, usually related to the particular need or challenge that 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 church is facing. So, for example, to the church in Thyatira, chapter two, verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Um, picking out a particular thing. And then there's the commendation of the church or a conviction or a challenge, a warning. And each letter finishes with a promise. Mm. Uh, and I suppose, as we were saying, the letters are for us all. It's for the universal church. And every church really down the ages has faced the same ch- basic challenges. And the solution is we need a bigger view of Jesus, yeah. a bigger picture of who he is. Mm. So each letter starts with this description of Jesus and it ends with a promise And it's a promise of more of Jesus. If you endure to the end, there's more of me for you. So we think of Ephesus and the tree of life. Mm. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, Or to Pergamum, the hidden manna and the white stone. Mm. Or uh, to Thyatira, uh, the morning star, one of of Jesus' own titles. That's a marvelous description. So the the picture of Jesus, more of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus. Wow. I like that. I love that. More of Jesus and the promise of Jesus. And then looking at, I mean, let's be a bit specific for a mm. moment. Uh, this letter to Ephesus, the first uh, mm. seven verses of chapter 2. And actually, Smyrna, looking mm. on to that, verse 8 to 11. Mm. What would you say are the challenges for them? Uh, well, I mean, just picking up from what Steve said. I mean, there's the Ephesian church, and he commends them. He says, look, you're passionate for doctrine on truth and all that. Great passion. But have you lost, he says, that love for Jesus? Mm. Because we can see that challenge, that we can see that as a challenge for our local churches, where you can get so, oh, we've got to get the doctrine and the truth right. But which can, is important. It's so important. Which is so important. He says, I commend you for that. It's right that you're like that. But they can sometimes forget just that love of the Lord Jesus. And it reminds me, I love the way the book of Ephesians ends with, make sure you love the Lord Jesus with an undying love. Well, that's, like, that's a good challenge. And this is the bridegroom writing to the bride. Oh, brilliant. Of course You've it is. You've forgotten your first love. And which Come is on. what was in the letter to Ephesians yeah. from Paul. Oh, yeah. I love that, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Of course the bridegroom's like, Where, what's going on? Yeah. Let's, where's the love gone? Yeah. I love that. And then the, for Smyrna, that's a church that feels really weak and poor. And they're like, we've hardly any resources and there's only a few of us. We're never going to manage. 
And he says, don't you worry. There's all the riches of heaven behind you. Don't look at the outward circumstances. There's an unseen reality of riches and strength and power. And he says, look, yeah, there are uh, persecutions coming and suffering and some of you may die. But don't worry. I've got you. I've got your life. There's a crown of life for you. What a word of encouragement to a church in hard circumstances. It is. And then actually, as we look on, we got, you know, Pergamum and uh, Thyatira Pergamum there in uh, chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Thyatira, you mentioned that a moment ago, Steve, 18 to 29. Christ's message refers to certain, do you see it there, to certain Old Testament characters now, like Balaam in uh, verse 14, Jezebel, verse 20. What's the significance of that? Yes, that's right. If Smyrna is facing pressure from outside, persecution from outside, it seems that Pergamum and Thyatira are facing dangers from inside. Mm -hmm. And we're Mm -hmm. taken again into the Old Testament to see the the same pressures, the same temptations faced by the Old Testament church. So here's Balaam and Balak. It takes us back to Numbers chapter 25, when the ancient church of Israel was on its way into the promised land. And Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse the church. And when that didn't work, uh, Balaam taught Balak to entice the church through sexual Mm. immorality and idolatry. Mm. And it seems that the same thing is happening in Pergamum. So in verse 15, uh, the Lord says, likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the Nicolaitans, Mm. whoever they were, seem to be the New Testament equivalent of of Balaam and Balak. A sort of insider group, but a bit sectarian, pulling right. people away. Pulling people mm. away. And, and to Thyatira, there's Jezebel, Ahab's wicked wife, mm. who, uh, who's sort of synonymous for, uh, for seducing the church away with idolatry and immorality again. Mm. And it's just a reminder, the same challenges, the same dangers face the church in every age. And often they're the dangers of idolatry and sexuality. Those mm. are the battlegrounds often, but it's the same so struggles. Often. So we take warning from that, of course. And then looking on to the church of Sardis, that's chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, mm. seems strong, verse 4, but mm. then the church of Philadelphia feels very weak. That's the end of verse 8. Don't, I, I quite like the comfort of verse uh, chapter 3, verse 10. What about you, Paul? Oh, I love it because if when we thought about the Smyrna church, they thought that they were very weak, but actually says you're rich and strong. With the Sardis church, they think, oh, we're alive, we're doing well. And he goes, are you? And he says... To me, you look pretty dead mm. and because the, the, they're not being obedient. They've not been doing what they should do. But on the other hand, there's a challenge there because they think there are a few of you, though. There are a few of you who are still going. I think it's good because he's, what should a church do when they feel that challenge that we've not been obedient? The whole thing, we're actually dead. He says, don't worry. If you turn to Christ, there are white robes that will cover what all the wrong you've done and the new beginning. So even to that church where there's such a strong challenge, there's this promise of a new beginning. But then to that church of Philadelphia, they, they feel weak and they sort of think, oh, how can we take advantage in the so, of the opportunities available to us? How, we're not very strong. But he says that's OK, because, yes, there's an hour of trial coming. But and I think this phrase of chapter three, verse 10 is incredibly important. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. So he's like, yes, it's a time of trial. But Jesus says, don't you worry. I've got you. I'll take you through it safely. Now, here's the thing. They might die. 
They might be imprisoned. They might have terrible times. But that's not the danger of the time of trial and suffering. The danger of the time of trial and suffering is that they may be unfaithful. They may betray the Lord Jesus and forget him and no longer love him. And he's like, no, you keep, you look to me, I'll keep hold of you. And I'll, I'll make sure no matter what you face, you'll be faithful to me, my faithful witnesses, and I'll bring you safely home. I love that. Yes, it's, it is very encouraging that. Of course, I like that very much in Sardis, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is on the point of death, as he puts it in the old translations. Wow. So even if a church seems to be on its last legs, there's always hope, providing there's somebody there who's got a witness to Jesus. Mm. And that maybe brings us on to the last of the churches, the seven churches. Chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, uh, with the church of Laodicea. And I think we could ask, what does the church of almost every age feel that the letter, you know, to the Laodiceans maybe had been written for them? Mm. Many churches do feel that, don't they? Well, in a sense, that's right. It was. It's written to every church down the ages. But as we read these seven letters, we often do feel particularly convicted as we read the, ch the letter to the church of Laodiceans. It's the challenge of being lukewarm. He says in verse 16, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Um, you say you're rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need to think, but actually you don't realise what you are, he says. You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And it's a church which thinks it's doing all right. Uh, maybe it's preaching the gospel, uh, maybe they're, they're meeting together and they're a very active church, but Jesus is on the outside of the church. And so as we read it, we're convicted, keep us from that, and there's always a way back repentance oh. oh that's very helpful there is a way back and uh even for a church that has got into nominal ways it's only a church in name indeed there may be somebody as we wind up now you're in a, such a church maybe you are only nominal in name in your discipleship of jesus christ so christ stands at the door he says there in chapter 3 verse 20 here i am i stand at the door it's the door of the human heart and knock if anyone anyone hears my voice and opens the door i will come in and eat with him and he with me the whole idea of eating of course conveying the idea of fellowship so christ can come into a person's life and come into the life of somebody who's just nominal in belief as he does so maybe he will come in through you to the life of that church as well this is a good moment for somebody to open the door when president gorbachev of russia was once visiting London and came to St Paul's Cathedral, with which I've got a connection. It was the dean of the cathedral, Eric Evans, who drew him to the great painting by Holman Hunt, painted many years ago, of Christ standing at the door of the human heart, your heart, my heart. And he said to President Gorbachev, this is your heart. And he said, notice where the handle is. You can't see a handle on the outside of the door because the handle is on the inside. There's something that we have to do to let Christ in, and when he comes into our life, then anything can happen, including to the rest of the life of the church. God bless you, and thank you for joining us, and we'll be right back for the next session. <laughs>